Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of, and coming up today, Lucretius, a spoonful of sugar. How's it going, everybody? I hope you're all doing well. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, well, so in this episode, I thought I'd try to say something about uh, about Lucretius and his view on the importance of uh, poetic writing. And um, if you don't know, Lucretius, who we don't have much of a bio on, was a Roman poet and a philosopher who was born around uh, 99 BC. And essentially, he's known for his uh, one and only work, a very large philosophical poem called On the Nature of Things. And um, what's it about? Well, On the Nature of Things is really an explanation of uh, Epicurean philosophy. It's a, it's a comprehensive exposition of Epicurus's worldview a view which uh, Epicurus expounded over 200 years before Lucretius was born. You see, Lucretius absolutely loved Epicurus and his message. Actually, you know, he revered him as a god, and at times even referred to him as uh, his, quote, father. Essentially, he thought that there were there were golden truths in Epicurus's philosophy and that the rewards of adopting an Epicurean outlook and lifestyle were hugely, hugely transformative. And uh, he wanted to pass this wisdom on to a, to a larger audience, specifically to the, to the Romans of his own time, to whom Epicurus was largely unknown. And that's what On the Nature of Things was for. Okay, but um, here's the thing. What on the nature of things is, though, is a poem. It's written in, uh, in verse, not in prose or the usual essay style. Now, why is that a, a bit strange? Well, it's a bit strange in part because Epicurus himself was, was anti-poetry. He thought poetry was unclear compared to prose. Now, to be more specific, I think that what Epicurus believes is that there's nothing wrong with uh, poetry per se. Poetry has its place. But 
It's just that if you're trying to communicate a philosophical system or worldview, you need to stick to the kind of concise and sparse medium of prose. That's the right medium for serious philosophy. Okay, well, so again then, why does Lucretius choose to write in verse about a philosophical system whose very founder was largely against poetry? Well, I think part of the answer lies in the fact that Epicurus's philosophy was at its core a medicinal one. In other words, for him, the purpose of philosophy was to serve as a kind of medicine for the alleviation of our, of our psychic and bodily ills. Okay, now, how is this relevant when it comes to answering the question of why Lucretius wrote in verse? Well, it's relevant in this sense. What Epicurus says about human existence and the cosmos is not at all easy to accept. It's not for the, um, the faint of heart. He's telling us like it is, at least as he thinks it is. What he's saying are things like this. He's saying that everything is just atoms in the void, that there are no recognizable gods, if any at all, and that there is no afterlife. Now, these are the sorts of things, the medicine, so to speak, that we must accept if we want to be cured of all our psychic ills and achieve tranquility and happiness in life. Now, that sounds uh, pretty harsh, right? Well, that's the Epicurean medicine that we need to ingest if we want to get started on the path towards genuine happiness. Okay, well, now we can begin to understand what Lucretius is doing. He's so adamant about the importance and the truth of Epicurus's doctrines, but he knows that they'll be distasteful to his audience. So what does he do? Well, he lures them in by coding Epicurus's claims in poetical description, in uh, mellifluous verses. Now again, the reference to, to medicine is apt. I mean, Think about it in the context of uh, children. I mean, children hate the taste of medicine, right? Even though it's, uh, of course, good for them. Well, so what parents or, or doctors often do, at least they, uh, they used to do, is they used to put the medicine in a cup and they covered the rim of the cup with honey. So what happens, of course, is that the child tasted the honey first and by the time he, he swallowed down the medicine, it was too late. Well, what Lucretius does is he employs the same strategy with respect to the Epicurean medicine. That's to say, we may find Epicureanism a bitter pill to swallow at first. So, what Lucretius does is he draws us in with some uh, honeyed poetry. He touches everything up with the charm of the muses. And uh, before we know it, we've ingested the philosophical medicine as well. A spoonful of sugar helps to make the truth go down. Okay, but um, even though this is a, a large part of Lucretius's motivation for, for writing Epicurean philosophy in verse and not in prose namely just a way of getting his audience to take the medicine Epicurus is offering up, 
I also think that there's something even more going on here, not unrelated. So I think that another motivation Lucretius has for uh, poeticizing Epicurus's philosophy is to show his audience how it's possible to see as beautiful and sacred a world without religion and without the supernatural. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, fundamentally, what uh, Epicurus presents us with is a remorseless materialism, one where the cosmos is ultimately just uh, physical, one where everything is made up of atoms that, that cling together for a brief moment, only to soon break up and form something new. And, as I said earlier, this is a cosmos without any supernatural gods and supernatural souls, and without the possibility of everlasting life. Essentially, you might say it's an, it's an atheistic view of things. Now, the reaction to this sort of view is often a, um, a dreary one, right? That's to say, people often think that it, that it sucks all the magic and all that is numinous out of the world. But no, far from it, Lucretius is trying to tell us. In other words, by poeticizing Epicurus's worldview for us, what he's trying to get us to see is just how, how glorious and vital and sacred and beautiful things are from the Epicurean perspective. He brings us back to the primacy of our senses. He colors the world with a sensuality that gets heightened when we accept that things are ultimately finite and that we are bodily beings through and through. He celebrates the, the transient nature of life as a miracle and doesn't repudiate it in favor of another later one. He doesn't lament that there is no afterlife. No, a human lifespan offers us all the opportunity for enjoyment that we could ever need. He encourages us to love the world that much more, knowing we'll soon lose it. He tells us that we should be grateful that we're around due to the random creation of blind processes, and not just spite that uncomfortable truth. The bottom line is that for Lucretius, the world is a wondrous beauty and so are we. It's so wondrous and sacred, in fact, that if we follow Lucretius, we can live lives worthy of the gods. So, to get back to poetry, I would say that for Lucretius, poetry is not just a, a means to persuade. No, if we pay attention, poetry is also something that is instantiated in the very world. It's in the very science of things, in the rainstorms, and the flowers, and the bees. The honey of the muses is right here, all around us, there, for our tasting. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com 